Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the examples we have, especially in Ruth and Boaz. I pray that you would help me as I preach now and for each one of us to trust you, that we would trust your ways, even over above ourself. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you read the Bible, you see that God uses all sorts of people to demonstrate his grace. And that should be a great encouragement to you, because it is to me. It means that if he can use some of the people in the Bible to accomplish his work, then he certainly can use us. I concluded last week's sermon by throwing a a Bible factoid at you um, about Boaz, a key character in the story of Ruth. Boaz's mother was Rahab the prostitute. Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, and when the Israelites were coming across the River Jordan to possess the land that the Lord had given them, um, they sent spies ahead, and the spies were found out, and the city was searching for them, and Rahab hid them in her house. And um, the deal was, she said, when, when God, when the Lord comes and destroys my city, I want you to spare me and my household like I've, I've done for you. And they agreed, and then they tied, she tied a red cord out of her window so that when Israel's army marched around the city and the walls fell down, that they would spare that family, which they did, in fact. And one of the things that's so encouraging is that this woman who was a, a prostitute Canaanite in Jericho ends up becoming an Israelite and gets married. She's no longer a prostitute. I mean, her whole city and family, except for who was in her house, they're all wiped out. She ends up becoming an Israelite. She ends up married to a man named Salmon, and together they have Boaz. And Boaz then leads on to King David and eventually Jesus. And so when you read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, it mentions Rahab, the prostitute, in the lineage of the Messiah. God can use anyone for his purposes, but it's people who are willing to surrender to God's purposes that he uses. I, think, I take great comfort in that, um, that God can use such a person. God's story, by the way, is still being written. Just because the Bible, the canon of Scripture is closed, it does not mean that God's story is done. You and I have an opportunity to play a part in God's story. And I know most people, probably all people, have a real desire for significance You want your life to count for something, more than just the number of days you get. We talk about leaving a legacy or wanting to have an impact on people, or we wonder sometimes, what does our life count for? You know, as a pastor, when I look at the scriptures, when I think most of what I hope would happen in my life is that the Lord himself would say, well done, good and faithful servant. If he would look at my efforts that way, that would be all that I would ever need. That, to me, is a great legacy. And I pray by His grace that will be possible, and I'm confident that apart from His grace, it will not be possible. But by choosing to follow in His ways, I think it becomes possible for all of us that that kind of significance is available. It will require a surrender, though, to God's grace. We see um, that significance is found in surrender, not in self. And I I want to come back to that idea today. We're in the last two sermons in Ruth, and maybe you're like my daughter who said, Dad, you've been like preaching on that for two months. When are you going to get done with Ruth? This Sunday, and then next is the last one. So we did, there's four chapters, we did two from each. I just didn't tell you that on the front end. So, um, but what we do learn in the story of Ruth is that names are important. 
I'm going to ask you a quiz from week number two when Dan preached. Uh, Don't shout it out like the early service did if you know the answer. But in this story, there are three widows. And you know Ruth, because the book's named for her, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Do you know who the third one is? Exactly. You don't, because as Dan mentioned, she was presented with the opportunity to go back to Moab, to her home country, or to go with Naomi. In fact, Naomi was encouraging them both to go back. Ruth said, no, I'm going to accept your, your people as my people and your God as my God. And the other one went back, and she's never heard from again. She walked off the pages of Scripture, she's not in the story, and you don't hear anything from her again. Now, I mention that because in today's passage, there's another person who should be named and doesn't even get a name in the narrative. You would think that the nearer redeemer, the nearer kinsman would have a name. And the author of Ruth, the author of the story of Ruth is intentionally not doing that. And he's showing us something about Ruth and Boaz and their receptivity to God's grace and their trust in his ways, even at personal expense, is what keeps them in the story and the other person doesn't. He doesn't seem to trust God. He looks out for number one, and we never hear, we don't even learn his name, and he's not significant in the story. Significance comes from surrender, not from self. So let's go to um, Ruth chapter four. It's page, I think, 224, maybe 223, somewhere around there. And let's see what happens. In verse, verse one, it says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. Doesn't friend seem conspicuously vague? I mean, after all, he knows Elimelech and he says, our relative Elimelech has died and his widow has returned, Naomi, and there's a nearer kinsman. So if Boaz knows Elimelech, he certainly knows the nearer kinsman. It's probably like his cousin or something. But he doesn't say, hey, cousin. He doesn't say his name. He says friend in here. In, in the ESV, it's translated friend. But it's way cooler in the Hebrew. The, it's an idiomatic expression that rhymes. It's, it's um, Poloni Almoni. Hey, Poloni Almoni, come sit down over here. Literally, that's what it says. And it's meant to kind of be like that. It's, it, it rhymes and it's kind of nondescript. It's like saying, hey, Joe Schmo. Hey, Joe Schmo, come sit down over here. And it's used in the scriptures three times. And sometimes it's used to refer to a place like such and such a place or Mr. So-and-so. And it's intentional that, that he's calling him that. He doesn't get a name because he's only concerned with self-preservation. And here's the kingdom thing. If you try to keep your life, you lose it. If you give it away, you save it. And so Mr. Poloni Almoni is only looking out for number one, and he doesn't get a name. And Boaz, who is sacrificing for others, ends up being a prime character in here. The temple pillar gets named after him. He's in the genealogy of Jesus. It's incredible. So, hey, Joe Schmo, come sit down over here. And what happens is a business transaction. Now, from the night before, we find that he, um, Boaz, races into the city before first light. He wants to get to the city gates before anything starts happening. And you have to understand In that culture, the city gates were like the courthouse. It was where business was transacted. It was where the mayor, the town leaders, the elders of the town would hang out there. And there were rooms and there was a way up there that you could do business. So he gets there first thing and along comes, it says, behold, but we know already it's not just an accident. It's not coincidence. We've got the Lord sovereignly guiding this story and it just so happens, behold, along comes the nearer redeemer. This, this nearer kinsman. And 
Um, he could have been out on vacation. He could have been already in the fields from the night before. He could have been sleeping in. But he shows up there in the morning. And he says, hey, Joe Schmo, come over, and, come over and sit down. And what he's doing is he's about to do a business transaction. And so he gathers 10 elders of the town because they're going to constitute a quorum for a legal transaction. And he says, our, our relative, Elimelech, has died. And his widow, Naomi, has come back from Moab. And she wants to sell her land. Really what she's doing is she's not selling it because it wasn't hers to sell, but she's offering up the rights to the use of the land to a potential redeemer who could then maybe buy it back from whoever's been using it or basically liberate the land to come back into, uh, into her family. But he knows she's past the age of childbearing and she'll die, and so it'll be his. And so he immediately says, yes, I will redeem it. Now, we know the love story from the night before, that Boaz has fallen in love with Ruth. Ruth wants to be married by Boaz, and he says, there's a nearer redeemer. And so, this, this transaction happens, and you're reading through, and he says, yes, I will redeem it. And you go, oh, no, he's going to steal the girl. That's messing up the story. But then as soon as he says, yes, I will redeem it, then Boaz says, ah, but you need to know, she also has a daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's come back, and when you redeem the land, you also will marry her and raise up children for her, and the land will belong to them, and you'll preserve Elimelech's line, his name, in perpetuity. The land will be passed down. It won't be your land, and you'll have a wife. And then immediately he says, oh, then I won't redeem it because my own inheritance will be compromised. In other words, I've got a different agenda going on. I'm not going to help somebody else. I'm only looking out for my stuff, and that's going to mess it up. And so then um, Boaz proceeds to buy it, so to speak. And it's kind of a funky transition here. Um, back when they went into the land, God said, look at the land, wherever your foot will tread, that land will be yours. So it became a, a custom to take off your shoe and hand your sandal to the person, and then they would trade sandals, which is a gross way to basically sign a property deed. But that's what he does. So they swap sandals, and now he's basically purchased the Redeemer rights. And so he says, I'm going to go and take care of this. I'm going to you know, I'm going to marry her, and I'm going to raise up offspring, and then that land will be Elimelech's. Um, and Poloni Almoni just chooses self, and he disappears from the story. He's not even given a name by the author. Because, see, significance comes through surrender to God's grace, not self. And Poloni Almoni is just looking out for his own interests. And so he, he's not part of the story. And Boaz, who's get, willing to give away, gets so much more in return. He gets recognition by God, not that that's what he was seeking. He gets a wife, he gets kids, he's, he's remembered in the story. You know, Jesus summarized the entire law this way. He was once asked, what's the greatest law? And you guys probably know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and there's a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. When you do that, you are living into God's purposes for the world. The entire law is summed up in that. Love God, love others. The entire law is not summed up in look out for yourself. That's just, you know, we're so used to hearing the Christian stuff. Could you imagine it, though? Look out for number one. That's not, it just sounds so wrong because the scriptures show us a different way. Consider this. Jesus perfectly demonstrated love for the Father and love for neighbor, God and others. He said things like this. I come among you as one who serves. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the one through whom everything was created. He has every right to come and demand to be worshipped, but he doesn't. He says, I come among you as one who serves. 
He says this, the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve. He says, when he's praying in the garden for us, he says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He didn't want to die on a cross. He wanted to obey his Father, and he wanted to redeem us, and it was going to cost him greatly. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. And you know, in that same evening, Peter picks up his sword and attacks one of the guards that come to arrest Jesus, cuts his ear off. Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on, onto his head and heals him right there, which is pretty, just mind-blowing to think about that. And then he says to Peter, basically, I'm paraphrasing, do you think I need the 12 apostles to defend me? Jesus literally says this, I could right now call on my father who will send 12 legions of angels. That's like 6,000 per legion. There's 72,000 angels. I could call down angels right now if I wanted someone to defend me. I don't need 12 legions. I don't need 12 apostles. I've come to do this. I'm doing what I came to do. He was loving his father and he was loving us. And therefore, the scriptures say that his name is above all other names. His significance is that huge. This is who our God is. He's, he's self-sacrificing. In the early church after Pentecost happens, the um, persecution breaks out around Jerusalem, and the leaders scatter to different places. Mostly they went to Jewish places, but some of them went to the Gentiles. In particularly in the city of Antioch, some people went up there and started proclaiming about Jesus to the Hellenists. Those were Greek-speaking Gentiles. And God was giving his grace to them, and they were coming to faith, and they were worshiping him. And when word got back to Jerusalem, they sent, the apostles sent Barnabas there to encourage them. And it says that he came there. Actually, I want to to read to you what it says. It says, he came and saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, keep keep your sights on God and his purposes. Don't be tempted to worry about number one, yourself. Focus on God. And he rejoiced. And you know, at the end of that paragraph, what it says, I'm I'm speaking about significance here in names and how important they are. It says in Antioch, they were first called Christians, which means little Christs. You see, they weren't Jews. They were Greeks. They were Gentiles. So they couldn't call them Jews like the the Jews who had found their Messiah. They were still called Jews. These ones couldn't be called that. They're like, what do we call them? Well, they're little Christs because they... They're doing the stuff Christ did. They're loving God and loving neighbor, and they're serving people, and they're giving their lives away. Oh, to be known for that, right? That's the kingdom. It's to love God and love others. And we see that Boaz, we see that in Ruth. In this story, there is significance through surrender, not self. I mean, think about it. Ruth loved God and decided that God is going to become her God. Instead of the gods of her home country, she says to her mother-in-law, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. She loved Yahweh. And she loved her mother-in-law. And we see Boaz loved Yahweh, loved Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Scripture is full of stories of people that do that. History is full of people that do that. And we don't have all their stories, of course. There are tons of people that love God and love others. But one day, we will get to hear those stories. And our story will be included in that. Unless we're like Mr. Poloni Almoni, who only cares about himself, The minute we give it away, we save it. If we try and hold on to our life, we lose it. That's the kingdom calculus. It's weird. It goes, it works backwards. Whatever you try to hold on to, you lose. But if you give it away, then you receive it back. So I think the image I have in my mind is of this. I I always think of holding out open hands. 
If the Lord wants to, he can put something in my hand, and if he doesn't, he can, he can take it out. He can give, he can take. The minute I close around it, all I have is whatever was just in my hands, and no more can be put in. If I'm like this, there's room for more, but I have to be willing to give it away. And the Lord is so gracious with that, that as we give it away, we receive so much in return. We see that in this story here, and it should encourage us. The Polonialmonies only live for their own sake. They live for themselves. But God's grace invites us to love Him and others and give our lives away and serve others. It's one of the things that makes this church plant I'm, I'm inviting us to be part of so exciting. I'm confident, I'm not doing it for this reason, but I am confident it's going to strengthen our church. It's not my motive for it. But the minute we start serving somebody else elsewhere, instead of trying to circle up the wagons and protect what is ours, the minute we do that, God's kingdom breaks in because of the way the math works. You give it away, and then God will bless that. You try and hoard it, and you diminish. And so it requires courage. Polonial Moni didn't have courage. He was concerned about his own inheritance. He was only going to worry about that. And God was giving an offer for something so much more. I think about Rahab. She trusted the Lord, and he gave her so much more. And so if he can work in a Rahab, if he can use somebody like her, he can use us. He can invite us into this. So I want to encourage you to consider in what ways could you love God and love others and be willing to put your own self-interests at risk, just like we see in this story. God's still writing his story, and he's inviting people in to come and trust him and to be part of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your love for us, it never fails. It never runs out. It's incredible. We will be telling that story forever. We will be singing songs about you forever. Lord, let your story shape ours. Give us the courage to trust you, to make you first, and to look into the interests of those around us who are in need. Help us to be like you. For I ask it in your holy name. Amen.